Welcome to this podcast from Christchurch London. For more information and resources, please go to ChristchurchLondon.org. Marvellous, marvellous. We are on week two of a short series of talks entitled Fully Alive, which seeks to explore what it really means for you and I to be made in the image of God. A couple of book recommendations before we kick things up, coming up on the screen behind me. Uh, The middle one by G.K. Beale and Mitchell Kim, God Dwells Among Us, is particularly to be read alongside today's talk. Uh, The most readable is Playing God by Andy Crouch, who's actually coming to speak at Christchurch in the autumn. You are in for a real treat there. And to be honest, whether you choose any of these books or none of them, I'm just a big believer that what we fill our minds with shapes the way that we live And so if we each commit to reading a few content-rich books every year, the cumulative effect over many years will be very significant indeed. Do bear that in mind if you are putting a summer reading list together. On to the subject of today. And I want to look at one particular facet of what it means to be made in the image of God. It's an idea that's rooted in Genesis, but actually weaves its way through to the final book of the Bible, Revelation. And to frame this talk, I want to start by playing a little game. Uh, It's sometimes called close-up picks. I'm going to show you an image of an everyday object really close up, and you have to guess what it is. Here's the first image. Can anybody guess what this is? Hands up if you think you know the answer. Any guesses as to what this is at all? They got this in one go in the East service last week. A pencil. Well done, Trevor. That's the correct answer. Next slide is the answer. There it is. Well done if you got that right. Uh, Here is question number two. Does anybody know what this is? Any guesses what that might be? Cotton bud? No. Stalk on a bit of fruit. Liam Thatcher. Congratulations. It's an apple. Congratulations. And the hardest of the three... Does anybody know what this is? Your hair. My, my hair, no. Any other guesses? What's that? A cocoon. A cocoon. Brilliant. Wrong, but a really great guess. Any other guesses? The correct answer is it's a tea bag. Every Christian should know that. Well done if you got it right and were too scared to say. Now, the point of that illustration is this. Sometimes, even with everyday objects, it's actually when you're really close up hard to see what they really are. Sometimes, not always, but sometimes the Bible works exactly the same way. When you get close up, particularly in the Old Testament, some of the curious laws and details and regulations, our response can be, what on earth is that about? Why on earth is that there? And what we need to do is take a step back and look at the overall narrative arc to make sense of some of the more confusing details. That's a bit like what today's talk is going to be about. Rather than looking at one passage in the Bible and explaining what it means, we're going to look at an overall story of the Bible from one particular angle that will hopefully make sense of some of the more confusing things, particularly in the Old Testament. So let's go back to the start of Genesis, particularly chapters 1, 2, and 3. And one of the things that's going on there is it's the beginning of an unpacking of a story of how God and people are going to relate. It's all about relationship. And in the ancient world to which Genesis was written, the place where God and people connected, did relationship, was in the temple. And there's a whole load of Bible scholars who are cleverer than I who think the first ever temple, when you read this Bible story, was actually in the Garden of Eden. Some of you may have seen some of these comparisons before, but I'm going to walk you through them again uh, very simply. Eden was the first temple. So just a few comparisons. For example, 
The Garden of Eden was said to be the unique dwelling place of God. In fact, the Hebrew word hithalik that describes God walking in the garden in the cool of the day is the very same word used to describe God's presence resting on the tabernacle and later the temple. Creation happens on the back of seven days, the last of which is all about the Sabbath day, a day of rest. In the same way, the tabernacle is created on the back of seven conversations between God and Moses, the last of which is all about consecrating the Sabbath day, the day of rest. Before creation, we are told the spirit is hovering over the face of the waters. Before the tabernacle is created, we are told the spirit fills the guy called Bezalel and gives him lots of gifts and abilities to construct the thing. We're told the Garden of Eden is situated in the east. The entrance to the tabernacle and the temple was said to face east. Just as cherubim, angels, were said to guard the presence of God in Eden, so they are constructed in the tabernacle and the temple in the holiest part as if to do exactly the same thing. Just like in Eden, the garden, the temple is filled with lots of garden imagery, flowers, wooden pomegranates, a lampstand shaped with buds and branches. We're told of the location of gold, precious gems, things like onyx, in and around the Garden of Eden. The very same ingredients were crucial in the construction of the tabernacle and later the temple. Genesis 2, we are told of rivers flowing from the Garden Temple Eden. When we read of future pictures of the temple in books like Ezekiel and Revelation, we see rivers flowing from the temple. And I could go on and on and on with the comparisons. Suffice to say this, When the ancients in the ancient Near East and the Mesopotamian world read the first three chapters of Genesis, they'd have seen these comparisons and would all have thought, oh, God's building a temple. This is a story of how God and people are going to relate temple language everywhere. Now, if that is the case, then one of the core facets of our identity and what it really means to be made in the image of God is if before sin came and spoiled everything, we were created to live in a temple, then it means that people were also created to be priests. In fact, the Hebrew words used to describe Adam and Eve's role in the Garden of Eden, Abad and Shammah, to serve and to guard or to keep are the very same Hebrew words used to describe the role of priests in the tabernacle and the temple. And this is a theme that weaves its way through the whole Bible. A few verses coming up on the screen behind me on the next slide. Exodus chapter 19, Isaiah chapter 61, 1 Peter 2, Revelation chapter 1. People were created to live in a temple. People were created to be priests. Old Testament, New Testament, Genesis to Revelation. But what on earth does that really mean? And what does it look like for you and I to live as a priest today? That is what today's talk is all about. You see, one of the core ingredients to this temple story, you and I were created to live in a temple and to be priests, is that humankind got kicked out of the original temple. We lost our role as priests. I'm sure you all know the story. Humankind has perfect, intimate relationship with God. They are free to do anything they want, but they are also free to walk away if they choose. And they can do so by taking the fruit of a particular tree. That's exactly what they do. And they are, as a result, kicked out of the Garden of Eden. They lose their role as priests in the original temple. Now, just to explain for a moment the seriousness with which the ancients viewed that expulsion. Uh, Some of you might remember a movie from the 1980s called Cocoon. Hands up if you remember this movie. These people are old, ladies and gentlemen, okay? 
Uh, this movie was out in 1985. Hands up out of interest if you weren't even born in 1980. Makes me sick. Ooh, we voted in the general election. Look at us. Yeah, yeah, hands down. Now, the whole idea behind this story is basically this. There's a group of old people. Here they come. There they are. And they come across a group of aliens and this kind of alien life force. And it kind of makes them impervious to sin and sickness and death. They kind of glow with vitality. Their lives are characterized by joy and life in all its fullness. They can laugh at the days that are to come. But they kind of have to go to the alien planet to enjoy this kind of supernatural life to its maximum effect. That is a picture of life in the temple. And just as an aside, that is not as far out as it actually seems. Because in the Bible, when people get close to God, particularly in the temple, it's kind of like they glow. They're characterized by radiance, life, light, and joy. C.S. Lewis actually preached on this in a sermon in 1941 called The Weight of Glory, where he said, we are created for glory and splendor. That is life in the temple. But when these old people end up having to come back to earth on a special mission, they end up succumbing to weakness and sickness and death all over again. That is a picture of life outside of the temple. And just to be clear, weakness, sickness and death, it wasn't like an arbitrary punishment dished out by God. It was seen as a natural consequence of us choosing to do life away from God. When I was brought up in Sunday school, I was taught that the natural punishment that God dished out for humankind's disobedience in the Garden of Eden was and is death. But no one ever explained that any further. And it kind of made me think of God as being a little bit mean. Let me try and explain it this way. Coming up on the screen behind me is an image of one of the last times I got a parking ticket in London. I was so incensed, I took a photo of it. That's my car there with a big bash in the back. And as you can see, the back wheel is about a foot over the white line and it's touching the yellow line. That's why I got the ticket. Had the wheel been a foot further forward on the white line, I would not have got the ticket. I wrote to Westminster Council. I appealed the decision. They turned me down and hit me with a large fine. Uh, out of interest, hands up if you have sympathy with my case, my plea. These are the pastors amongst us, ladies and gentlemen, okay? Nice to see that, uh, that role is alive and well in the South Service. Now, that is how many people view the God of the Bible. Oh, you're going to disobey me, are you? You're going to take the fruit of that tree. Well, I'll just write you a ticket. Death and sickness. Get out of my temple, thank you very much. That is not how the ancients viewed Adam and Eve's expulsion from Eden. It's a little bit more like this. Imagine, if you will, an iPhone plugged into an iPhone charger. It's glowing with life and an ability to connect to anywhere and anything on Earth. Now, imagine this iPhone says to itself, you know what, I don't need the charger, thank you very much. I'm going to live life my own way. I'm going to go my own certain direction. I don't need the charger at all. Well, very quickly, the iPhone isn't glowing as it once did at all. In fact, being an iPhone, within 25 minutes, it's down to 9% battery. Soon the battery, poof, it's gone completely. That is a picture of life outside of the temple. It's like an inevitable consequence of us saying to ourselves, we don't need God, thank you very much. And it's like the rest of the story of the Bible, Genesis 4 onwards, is a quest. How are we going to get plugged back into the charger? 
How can we get temple life and our priestly role all over again? That's the temple story. That's what it's all about. So fast forward, if you will, from Genesis 3 all the way through to Exodus chapter 36 and 1 Kings chapter 6, where the tabernacle and the permanent version in Jerusalem, the temple, were constructed. Now, some of these details might seem a little bit strange, but remember the opening illustration. We're going to take a step back a little later on and look at what these curious details actually mean. So the tabernacle and the temple were each constructed in three sections. The first section was called the Holy of Holies, or the Most Holy Place. This was where the presence of God, in all its light and life and glory, dwelt. It was cut off by a huge curtain that was probably several inches thick, and only the high priest, and then only once a year, could venture behind the curtain to the charger, the life, the glory that you and I were created for. God was seen as distant, remote, far off, the most holy place. The second section, remember we're created to be priests, was called the holy place. This was where the priests performed most of their duties. There were three items there in particular, the table of showbread, the altar of incense, and the lampstand shaped like a tree. And amongst other things, the priests were responsible here for their own relationship with God, with representing the people and with prayer. That is the holy place. The third section was called the outer court. And this was where most of the people gathered. And there were two items there in particular. The altar for sacrifice and a large basin of water called a laver. And what the priests would do is they would come out to the people in the outer court. They would sacrifice an animal. And because that was a very bloody thing to do, they would then wash themselves in the basin. In other words, if you were an average Jew in ancient Israel, your relationship with God would be conducted in and through a priest. That put very, very simply is how the ancient temple tabernacle system worked. Here are all three sections together on the screen behind me. Now, an obvious question to ask at this point is, Andy, why is this so complicated? Why did God make this so strange and curious? Well, I could give a long answer to that. Instead, I want to give two very simple answers. The first is, one of the things that this system showed is the hardness of the human heart. Remember, the temple was all about where relationship happened. What this really showed up was like, this is an opportunity to get plugged back into the charger. And all people really cared about was the glory and the splendor for their own selfish ends. They weren't really interested in relationship. The second reason this was so complicated is the ancients understood that when Adam and Eve got expelled from the original garden temple, it's not quite as simple as saying it was just a phone that got unplugged from the charger. Because in the ancient world, they understood that as a result of that, they became subject to what the Bible might call them principalities and powers over which we have no power or control. Now, if you're exploring faith, that might sound a little bit supernatural or strange. It's not actually as strange as you might think, because two of those principalities and powers were seen as sin and death. Death. You and I, for all our technological advance, have no power over death. We can try and prolong life for as long as we possibly can. But death catches up with everybody inevitably at some point. And sin, likewise, was seen as a power. We often don't think of it that way, but that's exactly what it is. Let me try and illustrate it this way. Imagine if from this point onwards, everybody in this room tried to be utterly perfect in thought and word and deed. How long do you think we'd last? Who do you think in this service would be the first person to sin? Some of us are sinning right now, aren't we? 
we're all powerless to overcome sin. I was reminded of this a couple of weeks ago. I'm leading the service at church. I've got to get myself in a good frame of mind. I'm prayed up, bibled up. I'm ready to go. The family are in the car. We get to the end of our road, and my four-year-old daughter, who's an absolute delight, she says totally innocently, Daddy, she says, Daddy, are you expecting any idiots on the road today? I'm like, whoa, where have you heard that? Driving with a mother again, no doubt. Now, it takes a four-year-old to remind me, oh, yeah, I just can't beat this sin thing. It's a power over which I have no control. In other words, the complexity of that system, it shows up in this temple story that we are powerless to get back into the temple. We are powerless to get our priestly role back. So what's going to happen in the temple story? Well, here's what happens. God ends up sending another priest, a great high priest. His name is Jesus. Metaphorically speaking, he lives behind the curtain. He has perfect access to and relationship with his Father in heaven. And he comes to earth and he lives the life that you and I couldn't live. And he, metaphorically speaking, comes out to the outer court and he gives up his life on the cross. And 1 Peter 2, if I decide to come through his sacrifice, I can come into a new temple, into the kind of new kind of holy place and experience relationship with God all over again. I can get back into the temple. I can get my role back as a priest. And just as at the end of creation itself, Genesis chapter 2, Exodus 40, the construction of the tabernacle. 1 Kings 9, the construction of the temple. It's like this great cry. The work's done. It's finished. So as Jesus gives up his life on the cross, John 19, 30, Jesus cries out, it is finished. A new temple started to be built, built on the foundation that is Jesus Christ. And I'm sure you know this. At that moment, as he gives out that cry, history records that the curtain that cut off the holy presence of God gets torn top down to bottom, God down to man, which means as a priest in this new temple built on Christ, I have access to the presence of God himself. And it's even better than that. It's not just that I have access to the presence of God. You see, Colossians 2 says that through the life, death and resurrection of Jesus, as he gives up his life, it's that he disarmed the heavenly powers. Those powers don't have the power they once did. Jesus has disarmed them. So though I might face and will face death one day, I have the hope of life the other side. I have power. God's presence comes and lives in me to empower me to overcome sin. It doesn't make me perfect straight away. Corinthians tells me it changes me from one glory into another. I get greater and greater power over sin as I let more of that light and life and glory into my life. That is the good news of the Christian faith. That in this new temple, my heart gets changed. The powers get disarmed. Temple life, my priestly role is back on the table. And all because Jesus is alive. That's the good news of the Christian faith. We can get our priestly role back. And so here is the $64 billion question. If I can come into a new temple because of Jesus Christ, if I can get my priestly role back, what does a priest's life look like today? How do I live like a priest? Well, I want to suggest two things, one simple and one a little more complicated. We'll do the simple one first. Firstly, how do I live like a priest? I enjoy access to the presence of God. The life and the light and the glory that I was created for. Let me explain this by telling you a story. It's about a guy by the name of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Some of you may have heard of him. He was a remarkable leader and preacher actually in London. Thousands of Londoners would gather every week in Westminster to hear the amazing things he had to say. His sermons were put into books, Remarkable Life, Remarkable Ministry. The story from the 1930s of two men coming to him and saying, Dr. Lloyd-Jones, you've got to help our friend. 
He's in a desperate place. He wants you to be the life and soul of our church community. He was characterized by joy, and it's like all of that's been robbed. This heaviness and depression has settled on him. He can barely get through life anymore. And added to that, there's this whole load of physical symptoms, severe headaches, stomach pains, pains across his body. Will you please come and help him? Dr. Lloyd-Jones said, of course. So they met in this man's living room. And Dr. Lloyd-Jones said, how long has this been going on? This guy said, since 1915. So 15 to 20 years at least. Dr. Lloyd-Jones says, what happened? This guy says, well, 1914, war broke out. And I was stationed in the Navy just off the coast of Gallipoli. I was in a submarine. We were hit by a mine. We went down to the bottom of the ocean. And I've never been the same man since. Dr. Lloyd-Jones says, OK, what happened next? This guy says, well, there's nothing more to say, really. Navy, submarine, mine, bottom of the ocean, never been the same man since. OK, says Lloyd-Jones, but tell me what happened next. Well, this guy goes, well, there's nothing more to say. That's all the info I've got. Navy, 1915, submarine, mine, bottom of the ocean. Never been the same man since. Yes, but what happened next? And this goes on and on and on. Lloyd-Jones said it was all part of my treatment. Well, eventually, as this guy got more and more frustrated, eventually Lloyd-Jones looked this guy in the eye and he said these words, here is your problem. You are still at the bottom of the sea. Physically, maybe not, but mentally, emotionally, and spiritually, certainly. Lloyd-Jones said this, that's your whole trouble. All your troubles are due to the fact that in your own mind, you're still at the bottom of the Mediterranean. Why didn't you tell me somehow you came up to the surface? Another ship saw you, got hold of you, got you on board his ship. You were treated there and eventually brought back to England and put in a hospital. Why didn't you tell me that you stopped at the bottom of the sea? This guy had no idea what to say next. And as Lloyd-Jones helped him reprocess the story, he writes that not only did the physical and emotional symptoms depart immediately, but this guy had his life and joy restored. He ended up becoming a church leader in his own right, actually, in Wales. And Lloyd-Jones finished by writing these words, I have a fear, my dear friends, that this is the trouble with so many of us. We are so aware of our problems, so immersed in them, that we have forgotten all of the glory that is around us. You know, as priests in the new temple built on Jesus Christ, we have access to the presence of God himself. And one of the reasons I can miss out on that is I tell myself the wrong story. I tell myself things like, Pursuing more pleasure, watching yet more TV will soothe my soul more than time with God. I tell myself things like, I have messed up so much that God will never give me as much of his presence as those good people over there. It is not true. I have access to the presence of God and it's my privilege as a priest to enjoy it. I feel a little embarrassed sharing this. Some of you may have had me share this in smaller contexts, but I figure a bit of vulnerability at the front never hurt anyone, so here goes. When I was in my mid to late teens, I was a very committed follower of Jesus, but I had baggage in my life. Uh, I went through a number of years of being very uh, badly physically and verbally bullied, uh, largely actually for being a Christian, and it left its scars on me. I had big hang-ups about myself, uh, particularly about the way that I looked. Uh, I had bad spots. I had bad hair. I mean, I had hair, but it was bad hair. And uh, out of earshot of anybody else, but to me, I would look in the mirror and I would say things to my reflection like, I hate you. You are ugly. You are a failure. You will never amount to anything. I mean, it went really deep. And I carried this for many, many years. I lived life, I loved Jesus, but it was like walking with a limp. I mean, you can live life with a limp, but it's better without the limp. 
Well, in my early 20s, I was in uh, a church that I was part of. And one evening, I was around the home of a friend, and he began to draw out some of this story. And he helped me to realize that while I attended church every week and I sang the songs and I nodded at the sermons, in many ways, I was still at the bottom of the sea. And I hadn't fully realized that I am a child of God. I am his workmanship. He's my daddy. He loves me so much. And he took me through an evening where he helped me identify the lies up here and to replace them with truth. It was incredibly powerful and incredibly cringy at the same time. I remember the cringiest part. Uh, He looked at me and he said, Andy, you are not ugly. That is a lie. What are you? And I was like, oh, no. I don't want to answer this question. Give me a word, Lord. Give me a word. And the word I found was beautiful, which I really wanted a better word at that point. He said, yes. Look into my eyes and tell me the truth. I'm like, oh, please, God, no. I'm ready for the second coming right now, God, no. He said, look me in the eye and tell me the truth. I said, I'm beautiful. He said, tell me again. I said, I'm beautiful. He said, tell me again. I said, beautiful. And all this emotion came up. And it was incredibly cringy. But that evening, it was literally like I came up from the bottom of the sea. I realized on the back of it, oh, man, I'm the workmanship of God. I am a work of art. I am beautiful. I am his child. He's my daddy. He loves me so much. I get access to the presence of God. He's deliberately made me this way. It has changed my life. Can I ask you a question? What story are you telling yourself? What story are you telling yourself? Let me just speak some truth over you. You are amazing. You are not a mistake. God has an amazing plan for your life. You are chosen. You are called. God has a purpose for you. You are not here by accident. The future for you is good and exciting. Do you know it? We don't have to pray and read the Bible and spend time with God, but we get to if we want to. What story are you telling yourself? You know, I don't want to be too dramatic. But as I have prayed for you as a service, I just wonder, maybe... Some of you have been following Jesus for many years, but maybe today is a day, metaphorically speaking, for you to come up from the bottom of the sea and know the resurrection life and life-transforming power that God has for you right now in the name of Jesus. The powers of sin and death have been broken. It is time to live like a priest. How do you live like a priest? You enjoy access to the presence of God himself. How are you doing with that? But then how do we live like a priest? There's one other thing. And to put it simply, I'd sum it up like this. Our job as a priest is to connect God and the world. To connect God and the world. You may remember the three sections of the tabernacle and temple we looked at earlier. Let's just put them up again. Well, that book I mentioned at the start of today's talk by Beale and Kim, God Dwells Among Us, there's this modern-day symbolism here that we can apply to our roles as priests today. And to really illustrate this, I need some volunteers from you lot. So, Luke, you'll do very nicely. Liam, you'll also do very nicely. Johnny, you'll also do very nicely if you'd like to come to the front, please. Johnny, if you want to stand around about here for me, please. Uh, You represent the presence of God in all his magnificent glory. Now, just to be clear... Beale and Kim make clear that the centre of gravity for God's presence still remains in heaven. As priests, we have access, but not the whole world yet. We'll get to the end of the story a little later on. That's why there's still pain and injustice and suffering. But you, my friend, are in the holy of holies. You are God in all his magnificent glory, if you could look glorious for me. That'll have to do. Okay, Liam, you are in the holy place. I'd like you to get on your knees. You are a priest, 
and you are in awe at the fact you have access to God in all his glory. Don't enjoy this too much, okay? And Lou, if you want to come around here, uh, you are in the outer court, and you represent sinful, depraved humanity, okay? Okay, so remember this, holy of holies, holy place, outer court, God, priest, people. Now, I want to flip this illustration. I first heard this uh, by a guy called Pete Gregg. He's coming to speak in the autumn, uh, head of 24-7 prayer, hilarious guy. I'm taking his illustration and fleshing it out a little bit. So he's put up the temple again, God, priest, people, holy of holies, holy place, outer court. And instead, I want you to imagine a daddy over here, holy of holies, God, a mummy here in the outer court, And daddy and mummy end up having a child. (laughs) I see you've been feeding him a little bit too well. There we go. Okay. Now, I want you to imagine that that mummy ends up going and having an affair with somebody else. If you could look sad and betrayed and you could look like a cheater, that'd be great. Wonderful. Okay. Now, the child is stuck in the middle. What's the child going to do? The child is utterly torn. And the child ends up pleading with the mummy, will you repent, make things right? And pleading with the daddy, relent from judgment. What I'd like you to do, child, is hold mummy and daddy's hand, stand on your knees because you're a child. I'd like you to pull away and you're to hold them together. Okay? This is a picture here of our role as priests. Sometimes this is described as intercession. 2 Corinthians 5 calls it the ministry of reconciliation. The way Tom Wright puts it in that book I recommended at the beginning is our job as priests is to bring the world to God and God to the world. This is our role as priests. But how on earth do we do that? How do we do that? Well, firstly, how do we bring the world to God? The primary way that we do that is through prayer. Is through prayer. And Beale and Kim say those items in the holy place have modern day significance today. So the lampstand often can represent the church. We are the light of the world. In fact, when you get to Revelation, lampstands and churches are sometimes used interchangeably. The table of showbread can sometimes symbolize communion, remembering the life and death of Jesus. And the altar of incense represents prayer. In other words, as priests in the new temple, we are to come to God and we're to cry out and we're to gather together corporately as the church as well and say, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. Where there's brokenness and injustice and pain, come and make it right. Heal our land. That's the role of a priest. But if your prayer life is anything like mine, often you'll grow tired and weary. Often you'll wonder, do my prayers make any difference at all? Often you'll feel like, I don't even know what to pray. Well, I've got some good news for you. God gives us a great high priest, Jesus Christ. If you'd like to stand between... God and the priest, daddy and the child. Some verses coming up on the screen. Romans chapter 8, Hebrews chapter 7. Who lives forever to intercede for us. In other words, this should give us great confidence when we pray. Because our prayers are a bit pathetic, to be honest, a lot of the time. I know mine are. But here we have somebody who never slumbers. He never sleeps. He takes the groanings of our hearts and presents them to his father. His prayers are perfect and he longs for reconciliation even more than we do. This should give us great confidence when we pray. How do we bring the world to God? We cry out to him in prayer and we have a great high priest who prays on our behalf. But then secondly, how do we bring as a priest God to the world? How do we bring God to the world? Well, obviously, the primary way is we come out to the outer court and we have to tell other people, Jesus is alive. The powers of sin and death have been broken. You can come up from the bottom of the sea. You can get plugged back into the phone charger all over again. It's amazing. 
extraordinarily, 2 Corinthians describes us as Christ's ambassadors, that Christ makes his appeal through us. That's extraordinary. But have you ever encountered a moment where you feel like, my message, it seems to lack power? People don't really want to hear about God. I mean, in this analogy, what mother's going to listen to a child? Most mums will be like, kid, you just don't understand. Well, Bill and Kim say those items in the outer court, they have modern day symbolism as well. What is there? Well, firstly, the altar of sacrifice. Well, we come to God through our perfect sacrifice, Jesus Christ. When we go to the outer court, which represents the world, who or what gets sacrificed? Here's the answer in the New Testament. It is us. It is us. Romans chapter 12, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. What I'd like you to do now is lie down as a way of showing you're giving your life for the world. Keep on holding mummy's hand and you want to hold his leg as a way of showing you're still interceding for us on our behalf. We lay down our life for the world. We go to work tomorrow morning and we say to ourselves, I am not here primarily for profit or for promotion. I'm here to bring God's presence to the world. I'm going to serve those who are in need. I'm going to be outstanding for my boss, whether I like him or her or not. I'm going to care for my neighbor. I'm going to be generous. My money, my home, it's not my own. It's his. So I'm just going to lay my life down. And then what does the basin represent? Well, Bill and Kim suggest it represents being clean, clean living. In other words, submitting yourself to this book. I'm going to put this Bible on top of Liam as a way of showing that he is submitting himself to the book. There we go. I enjoyed that a little bit too much, I confess. But I find it really interesting that Adam and Eve, people got kicked out of the original temple because they disobeyed the word of God. Now, when we make mistakes today, we can come back to God through our perfect sacrifice, our great high priest, Jesus. But actually, if we want our message to carry power when we go out to the outer court, we've got to live clean lives. We might not fully understand it. Yes, it needs careful interpretation. We might not agree with it all, but it is a mark of deep humility to say, you know what, he created the universe. I trust he knows better than I. And so we live clean lives. And that adds power to our message because people look at us and say, wow, they're different. They're not here for themselves. They're laying themselves down for the world. That's how our message carries power. But of course, this looks difficult too. It's really hard to lay myself down for the world, to live a clean life rather than the life I really want to live, to speak up when rather I'd be quiet. So I've got some more good news. God sends us his Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, stand in between the world, the outer court, and the child, the priest. And so as we live this out, God pours out his spirit on our lives so that we might see great power as we live this out. And by the way, by the way, this is why I believe with all of my heart that in the parts of the world right now where the church is exploding into life, I mean, it's not just people coming to faith every day. It is churches planted every day. It's because people, excuse me, are living this out. Often giving their very lives for the sake of the gospel. People are being martyred, probably as I'm speaking right now. Just extraordinary persecution of Christians going on but it comes with amazing power. And often in the West, why I think we see less power is we're holding on to more stuff. So it just takes more time to get rid of it all, if you're anything like I. I find it interesting that in Acts, when the church is exploding into life, we are not told that the priests or the church are fruitful, but that the word of God is bearing fruit. Just look at this for a moment. This is a picture of temple life in action. Can I have a round of applause for my splendid volunteers, please? That'd be great. You can sit down. Now, I want to use one more illustration to express all that in a slightly different way. This is a story from a movie some of you may have seen called Hacksaw Ridge, out last year, based on a true story of a guy called Private Desmond Doss. 
who signed up to serve in the Second World War as a combat medic because he didn't want to fire a weapon. He was a follower of Jesus and didn't want to kill anyone. His fellow soldiers hated him. They called him a coward and a nuisance. They beat him and threw stuff at him when he tried to pray. His captain, Jack Glover, he's going to be up on the next slide. Uh, he's the guy who uh, got the helmet on the right-hand side, tried to get him transferred. They hated him and couldn't get rid of him. Well, in the spring of 1945 in Okinawa, Dawson Glover's regiment had to climb a steep cliff called Hacksaw Ridge. It's coming up on the next slide in the movie and in real life. There's Doss at the top. And at the top of that cliff, there were thousands and thousands of Japanese soldiers waiting to fight. And as soldier after soldier got mown down in battle, Doss, without a weapon, would crawl through the gunfire and the grime to drag soldier after soldier to safety. His catchphrase, and there are countless documentaries about his life, is the catchphrase in the movie as well, was, God, help me get one more. God, help me get one more. One of his fellow soldiers who previously hated him said this, and this is a direct quote, it was as if God had his hand on Doss's shoulder. It's the only explanation I can give. Desmond Doss ended up saving the lives of 75 soldiers, including his captain, Jack Glover. He was the first ever soldier to be awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor without ever firing a weapon. What a legend. That's a picture of our priestly role. We come to our Heavenly Father, through our great high priest, help me get one more. May I know your presence in my workplace tomorrow. May my neighbours know some of the love of God through the way I live my life. Help me get one more. And then we go to the outer court and we lay our lives down. We live clean lives and it's as if God had his hand on our shoulder. He sends us his spirit that we might see his power and life in the world today. And the extraordinary thing is, when you get to the end of this temple story, and you read of the new heavens and the new earth, the shape is exactly the same shape as the Holy of Holies. In other words, God's presence, once confined to the temple, has now spread everywhere because of the power of living this out. That is how we live as a priest. That is what life in the temple is like. I wonder if the band would come up, and I want to finish just by asking you a very simple question. I am not naive enough to think that everybody here has been hanging on my every word. But I do believe that God is real, that his spirit is alive and well today. And so I want to ask you, for some of you, what has the Holy Spirit been nudging you about in here? For some of you, is it, I just want more of the presence of God? I'm hungry for it. I'm thirsty for it. I want the life he's created for me. Maybe for some of you, it's time to come up from the bottom of the sea and know his life-transforming power in Jesus' name. For others of you, maybe you felt convicted about bringing the world to God in prayer. We feel God is speaking to us as a church right now about prayer. And I believe there will be particular people who feel a particular call to like, I want to seek God and devote hours to doing just that. Often if you forgive the spiritual language, when you see amazing moves of God in history, it's in response to answered prayer. Is God calling some of you to that? For others... Is God nudging you about going into the world, laying your life down, taking risks, speaking up, sacrificing time, energy or money? Is it about clean living? Are there habits you are struggling to break? What is God nudging you about? Why don't we all stand to our feet? At the end of the service today, there will be an opportunity for you guys to receive prayer. What is the Spirit nudging you about? What is God calling you to as a priest. 
Before we get prayer, though, I think we should just worship our great high priest, our heavenly creator. His presence is here. You get a chance to get plugged back into the charger, more of his life and presence. So let's just start there. And there'll be a chance to get prayer a little later on. Thank you for listening. For more information or for further podcasts and downloads, please visit ChristChurchLondon.org.